For many, House Bill 6 is synonymous with scandal. The energy bill has been at the center of what's been called the largest corruption case in Ohio history. The state attorney general announced indictments last week against former executives at First Energy and against the state's former top utility watchdog. But still, much of HB 6 is still on the books, affecting ratepayers throughout the state. Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We start today with a conversation about House Bill 6 and its impact on the state. Then a documentary shines a spotlight on a part of the civil rights movement. The Lincoln School Story details the long fight by black mothers and their children in southwest Ohio, gaining admission to a white elementary school after the passage of Brown versus Board of Education. We'll talk about the documentary and a screening event held for it. Those conversations coming up. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Good morning and thanks so much for joining us. House Bill 6 continues to be at the center of a multi-year corruption investigation that shows little sign of ending. The bill was passed in 2019 and set forth a number of energy policies. The policy that got the most attention has been described as a nuclear bailout, which would have provided a billion dollars in subsidies for two nuclear plants owned by a first energy subsidiary. Those subsidies were repealed, but still much of the legislation is on the books and affects what ratepayers in Ohio pay and affects how slowly the state is moving towards clean energy policies. The investigation into the scandal surrounded the bill's passage sent former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and former state Republican Party Chair Matt Borges to prison last year. And just last week, Attorney General Dave Yost announced indictments against two former executives of First Energy, ex-CEO Chuck Jones and former Vice President Michael Dowling. Yost also announced the indictment of the former chair of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, Sam Randazzo. All three deny wrongdoing. We're going to talk about House Bill 6 now, including how much consumers are still impacted by it. Joining me for the conversation we have in studio. Kathy Ann Kowalski, a reporter for the Energy News Network. Kathy Ann, welcome, welcome to you. Glad to be here. By phone, we have State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler in Columbus. Welcome to you, Karen. Hey, good morning. And by phone, we have Neil Wagner, Federal Deputy Director for Energy Campaigns for the Sierra Club. He spent a decade focused on Sierra Club's work in Ohio with a particular focus on energy. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Happy to be here. And if you'd like to join the conversation or have a question for one of our experts, call 866-578-0903. Once again, that toll-free number, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Karen, let's talk about last week's indictments of the First Energy execs and uh, Sam Randazzo. Uh, for those who have been watching, were these a long time coming? And remind us how these individuals were involved in this scandal. Well, whether it was a long time coming or not, I think that's up for individual interpretation. But certainly you should remember that the arrests of Republican former House Speaker Larry Householder, uh, former Ohio Republican Party Chair Matt Borges and the others 
were in June of 2020. So almost four years from those arrests, we get these state charges. Now those arrests were of course on federal charges. And um, in the press conference where he announced these state charges, Attorney General Dave Yost said he was concerned about the statute of limitations running down and, and was wanting to move this case forward. And so these are the first criminal charges against former First Energy CEO Chuck Jones and former Senior Vice President for External Affairs Michael Dowling. And then, of course, Sam Randazzo facing charges at the federal level and at the state level. So what the alleged, what is alleged to have happened here, this kind of picks up the story from the federal case where Householder and Borges were convicted of being accepting bribes and working together to well, Householder worked with his team to pass House Bill 6, which included a billion-dollar subsidy for the two nuclear power plants owned by a First Energy subsidiary. And Borges was convicted of working to keep that from voters so voters couldn't repeal that law. So on the other side now, we have First Energy. They admitted to a plea. They admitted to, to bribing Householder and Randazzo. And the question was always, who authorize that. So that's where the state case picks up. The state's indictment alleges that Jones and Dowling approved that bribe. They gave it to Randazzo. Randazzo did some interesting things with the money and that he even wrote parts of House Bill 6. Mm. Now, Kathy Ann, Attorney General Dave Yeo said the three indicted last week, again, that's uh, Dowling, Randazzo, and, and former CEO Charles Jones were, quote, hijacked Ohio's regulatory structure. What did he mean by that? Essentially, what he was talking about was the concept of regulatory capture. The Public Utilities Commission of Ohio is supposed to serve as a mediator between utilities and the public to make sure the utilities act in the public interest and provide energy to Ohioans at a fair and just price. Um, through the alleged bribery scheme, which First Energy admitted to its, in its deferred prosecution agreement, you basically had the Public Utilities Commission now having Randazzo in there as the head of the commission, able to exert influence, able to steer decision-making, uh, able to really have a lot of effect on what was going on, and the concept was that he was going to be doing first energy bidding according to the indictment and according to the deferred prosecution agreement first energy signed in 2021. And and in essence, the representation for the public thereby gone if he's doing the bidding of the company alone. Correct. That's the entire concept of basic corruption. Let's talk about what still is on the books. Kathy Ann, I'm going to stay with you for this. The coal subsidy that is a part of HB6 benefits. Two aging coal plants known as the OVEC or Ohio Valley Electric Corporation plants. Multiple energy companies are still getting that money. So talk about that that's still being on the books and its impact on the public. Well, that's still on the books. That is likely to get us paying about $850 million by 2030 collectively in the state. Um just to keep these plants running, and they are not profitable. They, uh, you know, according to an analysis from an expert for the Ohio Manufacturers Energy Associate uh, Energy Group, these just keep costing more to run than 
they can sell the electricity for. So there's that cost. That's one. And another cost that we have is that House Bill 6 also got rid of Ohio's clean energy standards, which were a renewable energy standard and an energy efficiency standard. So you had an estimate that had been done at one point that uh, essentially said there would be uh, maybe two to five billion dollars of wasted money for energy that could have been saved through energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And also we have impacts for health on Ohioans as a result of increased pollution from the coal plants that kept going or just from not procuring more clean energy for the state. So, Neil, I turn to you. Um, when we when we look at all of this, um, the sum total of House bills, uh, legal implications, environmental implications, I know in a pre-interview with you, you know, you used the word shocking several times. Um, is that the appropriate term for kind of the lasting effects this legislation continues to have on the public? Oh, absolutely. This is the shocking or startling, I think, are the words that the operating words to use most commonly here. Um, Ohio is one of the only states to have ever really altered the uh, renewable standards to go backwards as compared to increasing them. Uh, we are the only state that has done so aggressively to basically completely get rid of them. And to pair that with the bailout of these 1950s coal plants, which there's just nothing in the consumer interest, um, is is really shocking. And that it was all done under this complete veneer of just startling corruption. Corruption that is more profound than I think we've really ever seen in Ohio to this point um, is, it, it, again, start, startling or shocking or operating words here. And Neil, uh, Kathy Ann talked about some of the ways in which uh, the public or ratepayers specifically are continuing to pay for the coal plant uh, bailout. But you say that first energy customers are, are even carrying a greater weight um, when it comes to the financial burden of the bailout. Tell me how. Right. So as part of HB6, already customers in central Ohio and southern Ohio, uh, folks that are customers of AEP, Duke, and AES Ohio, they were all they were already uh, paying for bailout. And the HB6 expanded the bailout. So now first energy customers who were previously not paying for it were going to be started to have to pay for it as well. But because they were not previously paying for it, and they didn't hold necessarily hold uh, their parent company didn't necessarily hold a component of the OVAC contract. What's happening now, and this is in the implementation of it, is that any costs associated with the OVAC that First Energy customers are collecting is then being remitted to AEP, Duke, and AES Ohio. So essentially what you have are folks are in First Energy Service Territory, so Northern Ohio, are paying to help uh, can essentially subsidize other customers who are in themselves bailing out this corporate terrible decision, which is the uh, the continued running of the OVAC coal facilities. 
If you'd like to participate in the conversation, you can call us again at 866-578-0903 or email us at soi at ideastream.org or you can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. We got an email from Susan that says, instead of repealing the subsidies that are costing Ohioans money, the Republican supermajority spends time on issues that hurt Ohioans. The question, is there something going on that is preventing them from repealing? Karen, what is your uh, what is your vantage point telling you when it comes to the political appetite or will in Columbus to go after HB6 to repeal it or at least a rationalization of why the legislation con- continues to be on the books? Well, I know there are a group of Democrats and even some Republicans, they've proposed bills separately to try to repeal all of House Bill 6 in many cases. I mean, certainly the coal subsidies, which are around, I think, 200, a little over $200 million, maybe um, since 2019. So they're, they're still adding up. And uh, you've got Democrats like Casey Weinstein from Hudson and Sean Brennan from Parma who are leading the way on that side. And then you have Republicans who are on the side opposed to Speaker Jason Stevens, who have been wanting to push this bill forward. They've tried on the floor to bring the bill up, and Stevens has not recognized them. When I sat down with Stevens for our end-of-the-year discussion last year, I asked him, what about repealing all of House Bill 6? If it was such a good idea, why not repeal the whole thing since it's arguably tainted and go back and find, you know, pass the individual elements of that. And he said, since he he was not in the legislature when House Bill 6 passed, but he said, we've gone over this over and over again. There's no reason to re-review this. And so it's going to stay the way it is. It should be noted that one of those two coal firepower plants is in Speaker Stevens' district. Mark from Columbus is calling in with an interesting point um, and an important one. Let's let's take your call. Mark, good morning. Good morning. I have two things. Uh, number one, the efficiency standards. If you watch the Senate hearings of the state of Ohio with Senator Dolan, you will find out that the efficiency standards are going to be costing people $10 a month to subsidize those. We're on the gas side. The uh, same efficiency standards were completed at zero cost. That's why they told the electric side, why are you being, you know, taking all this money when the gas side does it for zero? So they canceled the electric side, and that saves people tons of money. The second thing is the two power plants that are coal-fired are inefficient, but we need their power in order to keep from having to go outside our PBM and be charged horrendous amounts of rates because those charge our rates up to the highest dollar we can bear in our 12-state area. And that's why they're keeping those two running right now. It's cheaper to subsidize them than for everyone in the whole PBM to pay an extra 10% or so on their electric bill every month. All right. I want to get uh, Kathy Ann and, and, and Neil's perspective on that. Thanks, Mark, for calling in. The benefits of, of keeping those coal power plants running and subsidized by ratepayers is there advantages, um, you know, long term fiscally and even energy wise to keeping those those plants running. Kathy those, Ann, those two plants could Neil can correct me if I'm wrong, but those two plants could close without any problem as far as capacity in the PJM footprint, which is a thirteen. It's got all our parts of 13 states plus the District of Columbia. Those plants are not necessary for us to have capacity. 
and also on the energy efficiency standard, the prior law before House Bill 6 required that the standards, that energy efficiency programs on the whole, in order to be charged to ratepayers, had to be cost effective, meaning they had to save ratepayers more than they would cost on balance. So the savings had to be there or else the uh, charges couldn't be passed along. Neil may have other thoughts. Yeah, you want to add to that, Neil? Yeah, I'll concur with uh, what Kathy said there. First, the the energy efficiency standards, programs to reduce energy waste, they were required to be reported and approved by the Public Utility Commission. And if they didn't save more money than they than they cost, then they were then they didn't weren't implemented. So, they, and that was a regular reporting that was happening up until the point that the legislature got rid of them. And on the point of the OVET coal plants, look, these plants are losing money every single month. They've been losing money every single month. They are costing customers a ton of money to just basic status quo. And as for the idea that uh, they are needed to keep the lights on, that's not true at all. Uh, we have more than enough capacity in PJM. And if there is an issue, if there is a concern with a plant closing could lead to uh, issues of there not being enough power, PJM has mechanisms that they can pull that keep a plant online until enough power is available through new generation being built. Quite simply, these plants are not needed. They are costing customers a ton of money and they are tied to extreme corruption. Karen, and you were- I would add, yeah, I would add a couple of things here. First of all, the idea of these two coal fire power plants being put into a bill that was called the Ohio Clean Air Program is right. one of the things that surprised a lot of folks. But <laughs> they were put in there to get more votes because this was a time that uh, there was a concern about bailing out these two nuclear power plants. And so they were added in to get more legislative support to get House Bill 6 through. And at least that's one reason that they were added in there. And the removal of the renewable energy standards, that's something that Republican lawmakers had wanted to see for a very long time. Former Governor John Kasich had talked about that. There were people in the Republican legislature who were very concerned calling these mandates and, and unfunded mandates, and, and they didn't like these standards, so they were looking for a way to get rid of them. Karen, I'm curious, too, you know, the, the politics of keeping those plants, you know, you mentioned some, but, you know, people reliant on the jobs that are related to those plants and, and the communities that um, rely on them. Do you think symbolically um, they were an important kind of uh, pawn or chip in this whole in this whole kind of situation going on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you had Republicans and Democrats who supported House Bill 6 because of concerns about jobs. I mean, the threat of the nuclear power plants closing, we had heard that for several years. I mean, First Energy had tried to get a bill passed that would give subsidies, bail out those plant power plants before. And they were bailing them out, the argument was, because they are zero carbon emissions, so they're clean. And so that was, that, that never got any traction before House Bill 6. But certainly if you shutter two nuclear power plants, I mean, that's a tremendous loss of jobs. That's a loss of taxes for the community. Those are the kind of things that were talked about as being reasons to support House Bill 6. 
You are listening to State House News Bureau Chief Karen Kassler. I am also joined by Kathy Kowalski, reporter for the Energy News Network, and by Neil Wagner, Federal Deputy Director for Energy Campaigns for the Sierra Club. We're talking about House Bill 6, those latest indictments, and the impact of that legislation on our state currently. Neil, you know, we, we kind of talked about this, but I want you to, um, you, you know, you've got that national perspective. So I'd love to know contextually, you know, where exactly does Ohio stand when it comes to clean and renewable energy policy? And do you think in some respects the state is still beholden to kind of, you know, the fossil fuel industry and and not moving at at the pace that we need it to in order to tackle things like climate change, et cetera? So, Jenny, when I talk to folks around the country and I tell them about all the things that have happened in Ohio really in the in the last decade, from coal plant bailouts and HB6 and the crazy sort of cases that we've had come through the Public Utility Commission um, that provide huge handouts to our, our utilities at customer expense, uh, folks have their jaws absolutely dropping on the ground. They are shocked at how at, – at, how things function in this state because it is just so different and worse than anywhere else in the country we are talking about a we are talking about levels of corruption that are really unheard of and they we are dealing with uh policies that are incredibly regressive and are not even tipping the scales but absolutely throwing their fist as hard as possible on the scale in the name of supporting the fossil fuel industry and for hurting our climate and public health goals in terms of what all of this does for uh for fighting climate change and for supporting improvements to public health yeah absolutely the fossil fuels industry still holds a ton of sway here it's why we are still bailing out two coal plants that there's no justifications for it's why we've made the state legislature has made it incredibly difficult to move forward with building uh clean energy wind and solar projects while doing nothing to hamper um the fossil fuel industry and it's why we are doing the legislature has done things like approve fracking in state parks something that has zero support across the across the state karen do you think in columbus there is frustration amongst more kind of progressively minded some of the democrats in columbus regarding the energy policy in ohio I think there's frustration among Democrats in a variety of areas in Columbus um, (laughs) because certainly they are in the super minority and it's very difficult for them to get legislation through. And it's really difficult, even if for some reason maybe they would team up with some of the Republicans who did not support Jason Stevens as speaker and tried to introduce a bill. I mean, if the speaker doesn't want the bill to go forward, it's probably not going to go forward. So I, I think... Yeah. So, um, you know, the argument had always been, like I said earlier, that if if House Bill 6 was so good and we kept hearing this throughout the campaign, I mean, my Governor Mike DeWine said this is a good policy because it's uh, about energy, uh, one size fits all or, or all of the above or whatever the term is. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it's a diverse energy portfolio and nuclear power plants need to be a part of that the argument's been, well, hey, if this is so good, why don't we pass these elements individually so that we can hear about the individual elements again instead of just leaving this on the books? And that's just, I don't think it's going to change. Let's take a call from Philip in Shaker Heights, who's been waiting on the line. Philip, good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. Pleasure to speak with you all. You know, if you think about Lake Erie and the Perry nuclear power plant, 
they do get earthquakes over there. The Perry Nuclear Power Plant's very old. As I sit here and drink my tea, the water came from the tap from Lake Erie. That should be the concern, not over money. The, the populace realizes there's corruption throughout the news. We have to think more about what we really need. And whether it's a coal plant, there's going to be more electric cars, there's always things to deal with. Maybe in our great minds we can have a day where we just unplug everything and then think what we really need. Because if we lose our water to nuclear waste, it'll be worse than Fukushima. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Phil, for the call. Uh, Kathy End, I mean, in your reporting, have you found um, any kind of answers to concerns about the uh, nuclear power plants and impacts from natural disaster, et cetera? The Perry Nuclear Plants license is up for renewal. Uh, there has been a motion for a petition for intervention filed with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I don't think it's been ruled on yet, but both Energy Harbor, which now owns the plant, and uh, the NRC staff wanted to keep the interveners out. So I don't know exactly where that's at, but I do know that that's been an issue that's been raised. The earthquakes issue is out of the petition now, but there are concerns about potential leaks of tritium, which is a radioactive form of hydrogen. Hmm. Let's talk about First Energy, Karen. First Energy was very proactive following the scandal in separating itself from, you know, what we would perceive as the bad actors and the people now who are getting indicted. Can you kind of lay out for the public what First Energy did? Yeah, once the arrests came down in June of 2020, First Energy uh, very publicly talked about an internal investigation, um, had, had was defending itself. I mean, I remember a uh, second quarter earnings call in 2020 where Chuck Jones was saying, we're going to cooperate with investigators, but First Energy's had a really good quarter. So they, they were certainly arguing that they are a good, solid company even after what was happening with House Bill 6. Uh, for Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling were fired in October 2020 after that internal investigation. And since then, we really haven't heard a whole lot from them. And Sam Randazzo, same thing. He had resigned from the Public Utilities Commission not long after his house was raided by the FBI in late 2020. And we really didn't hear a whole lot from him until he was indicted and went to federal court in Cincinnati in December and pleaded not guilty. But certainly they've pleaded not guilty in Summit County. And one of the things that I keep pointing out here is with these state charges, it'll be really interesting because we'll be able to actually, if there is a trial, hear and see some of what the evidence is. We weren't able to bring that evidence to people, the audio of that and, and some really live happenings from the courtroom like we will be able to in state court because cameras and recording devices aren't allowed in federal court. So this could be a really interesting trial if it even gets to that point. That's a good point. Uh, Neil, I, I wonder, you know, uh, we were talking about First Energy and it's dropping its pledge to cut greenhouse gas emissions. So it's by 30 percent by 2030, uh, just three years after making that commitment. I, I assume uh, the Sierra Club was very disappointed in that. Do you know what the rationalization is for a dropping of that policy? Uh, I don't think that there is a good rationalization for it. Right now, we are in a time period where we need to be 
increasing our goals and our commitments to clean energy and carbon reduction. We have the Biden administration, which has um, with with Congress passed some of the most progressive, supportive climate legislation in, in history with the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan in uh, infrastructure bill. So we have the federal incentives there to help make this happen. We have the public will there to ha make it happen. And we really have this uh, requirements that we, we need to be doing this to make sure that we have a, uh, a sustainable planet. So we everything is pointing to it makes sense to do this. It's the necessary thing to do and to go and to be cutting these climate goals and these carbon goals. Now, it just doesn't make any sense. We are uh, running out of time. So Kathy Ann and Karen, I want to ask you, you know, what will you be following when it's related to HB6 uh, in, in the coming weeks and months? Uh, Kathy Ann, I'll start with you. Sure. I'm going to be following uh, some cases at the Public Utilities Commission where First Energy is looking to add additional charges to ratepayer bills. Mm. And yet it kept out evidence relating to House Bill 6 from those cases. Mm. And I'm also going to be watching whether four House Bill 6 cases ever get unfrozen at the Public Utilities Commission. I'm going to keep an eye on shareholder litigation. I'm going to keep an eye on whether any of the uh, bills move forward. And I'm also going to keep an eye on what's going on in the Householder Borges appeals and in the criminal trial and the state civil case. So the story is far-reaching. And Karen... Last week's indictments renewed questions for Governor Mike DeWine, especially since he appointed Randazzo. What are you going to be watching out for? Well, certainly the questions are, what did he know and when did he know it? And that's going to continue. The House Bill 6 has really become a political football here in some of these campaigns. This is a year where the entire House and half the Senate is up for re-election. It even came up in the U.S. Senate Republican campaign. Uh, there was a debate on Monday among the three candidates for that office. And, and one of them even brought up, Bernie Marino, brought up that uh, Matt Dolan and Frank LaRose were both in the legislature when House Bill 6 passed. So actually, I think, no, Frank LaRose had just left the legislature. But anyway, so it's, it's, it's going to be talked about a lot. I imagine Democrats are definitely going to be trying to use it, as they have before, to very little success. I would add that uh, both DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston are named in that civil suit that Kathy Ann just mentioned. And DeWine had turned over some records as part of a subpoena, and Houston is supposed to give a deposition in the next couple of weeks in that as well. Karen Kastler, Ideastream State House News Bureau Chief, Neil Wagner with the Sierra Club, and Kathy Ann Kowalski from the Energy News Network. I thank you all for your time this morning and for this conversation. Glad to be here. Thank you. Great Thanks, to talk. Jenny. Thanks. Time now for a quick break, but when we return, we'll hear about a heroic fight for civil rights that took place right here in Ohio in the 1950s. This is The Sound of Ideas. I'm Jenny Hamill. We'll be right back. You're with The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Jenny Hamill. Thanks for staying with us this hour. Most of us were taught in U.S. history class about the landmark 1954 civil rights case, Brown v. Board of Education. With the Supreme Court ruled that separating children in public schools on the basis of race was unconstitutional. But for many black families, the right for equal education didn't end with that landmark ruling. 
In Ohio, a brave group of mothers and their children in southwest Ohio marched for over two years trying to get those kids admitted into a white elementary school after Brown v. Board was decided. The story of the Hillsborough-Lincoln School Marchers is known as one of the longest sustained actions of the nation's civil rights movement, yet the story is not very widely known. Now it is the subject of a documentary called The Lincoln School Story. Tomorrow at 4.30 p.m., there will be a film screening and panel discussion about the Lincoln School story at Case Western Reserve University in partnership with Ohio Humanities that I will be moderating. I'm very excited about. We have details to register for the event on today's show page at ideastream.org slash SOI. Now joining me to talk about the, the issue and the screening is Dr. Melvin Barnes, Jr., a historian and program officer with Ohio Humanities, who helped do the research for this documentary and helped produce it. Melvin, welcome to you. Hey, happy to be here. We are also joined by one of the Lincoln School marchers, Teresa Williams, who marched along with her mother, Sally Williams. Teresa, thanks for calling in. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. If you would like to join the conversation or have a question for any of our guests, call 866-578-0903. Again, we're phasing out our 216 number, so call us toll-free, 866-578-0903. You can email us at soi at ideastream.org, or you can tweet us. We are at Sound of Ideas. So, Melvin, I watched the documentary, and truly the story is incredible. I don't think it's as widely known as other major protests during the civil rights era, such as Rosa Parks or the Montgomery bus boycott. Do you think this story is emblematic of what communities were facing regarding desegregation efforts? Yeah, this story is really important in terms of understanding what happened across the country in the wake of that Brown decision. Uh, That decision didn't have a lot of guidance. And what that meant was that every community uh, across the country had to figure out what that Brown v. Board decision meant on the ground. Uh, And this story really helps us to understand that it took, you know, mothers, children, brothers, sisters, cousins to stand up in their communities to actually make sure that that Brown decision meant something uh, once it came down. Okay, so... Tell us, kind of frame the story for us. So Brown v. Board of Education passes, and I think a lot of people would assume that's the end of the story. Okay, everything's all good. Now everyone can integrate, and and, and, and it's kumbaya. That was far from the case because you weren't changing societal minds. You weren't changing the culture. And so tell us what was happening with this specific school and these kids wanting to go to that what was then the white school. Yes. Yeah, so this was actually a, a very complex situation. So the Brown decision comes down uh, and the decision from the school board in Hillsborough is ultimately that they are not going to immediately integrate. Uh, so what ends up happening is there's a concerned citizen in town named Philip Partridge who actually sets fire to the African-American school. His thinking was that if we burn the school down, that will force them to integrate the two remaining uh, schools, Washington and Webster. Uh, so the intent was, I guess, good, but the execution is just, Yeah, you know, oh, they, yeah. We, we, yeah, he, he had an idea, and I don't think he fully thought out the, the full ramifications of what would happen. 
um, in the wake of that. So when he sets fire to the school, uh, many of the mothers, they're thinking, okay, well, they're going to have to integrate. But the school board decides to take a small amount of money and actually repair uh, the burned uh, Lincoln School. Um, the mothers who decided that they were not going to send their children back to that school really had concerns about the safety of that school. So they said, we're not going to send our children back to a school that had been set fire. It's a two to three story building. They just didn't feel um, good about that. So they brought their children to the remaining white schools um, expecting to be admitted. Um, and they were denied entry. Uh, and that's when the marching uh, really began in the wake of that denial. And Teresa, you were a child when all of this was going on. Can you take us back to what it was like when you were at Lincoln School? In the documentary, it talks about how there were things your school didn't have that the white school did. Yes, uh, I was 10 years old, and we had uh, three classes in one room. It was the first, second, and third grade, and then the other room had fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And we all had the, some books that were not so good. We got the books that were, when the uh, Washington and Webster got new books, we got their old books. And there was pages and things missing in them. But it was kind of hard for the kids to be in that many, trying to learn each subject with, you know, that many kids in one room. But we managed. And uh, so then when that start got on fire, it, mom said she wasn't sending us there, and the rest of the mothers decided they weren't going to do it either. So we started marching. And so you marched with your mom and other kids and their moms yeah. from your homes to yep. to to the street. I don't know whether it was a mile or a little more. It was from one side of town to the other. And there was, every morning we met down in front of our house, and everybody got in the line, and you marched, didn't make a bunch of noise, you could talk. But we stayed together, and we did that for two years. And did you think about it as a kid? Like, what are we doing? Or did your mom kind of say, this is important, and we've got to go to see if you can get into the school every morning? I'm, I'm the second oldest of 11 children, and our mom told each and every one of us, you're going to get an education, you're not dropping out. So we did what she said. So put this into context, Melvin. I mean, we're talking about the 50s, and you've got a group of black moms walking with their black children to the white school for two years. Um, to be denied is is what uh, happened. And it was the principal, right? I mean, according to the doc, he would walk out and kind of say, you're not able to go to this school this morning. Yeah, yeah. there was a, a, the school board made the decision that they weren't going to immediately integrate. I think the, the principal happened to be the person who had to break that news to those mothers every morning um, and say, you know, I'm sorry, but we can't admit you today. I don't think that in, in the accounts that we've read, he doesn't come off as being particularly um, aggressive I in see. that. Um, but he, he certainly was there to deliver that news that those students were not welcome uh, to come to that school. 
Um, and, and putting it in its broader context, you know, this is the 1950s and yeah. this is a, a movement that starts before the Montgomery bus boycott and ends afterwards. Right. So and I, I say that to, to emphasize the fact that the, the motivations that got those mothers out in marching are the same motivations that sort of uh, propelled those people in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, to take action then. So it really helps to underscore that these women and these children and their families were on the forefront of a lot of that larger sort of 1950s civil rights movement. Ordinary people making extraordinary choices, right? Every day. Yeah, every day. It doesn't always have to be, you know, these big names that we hear. No, it's it's people in their communities making a decision to stand up for change. That's really what this documentary is about. So, Teresa, you wanted to add to what Melvin was saying? No, that's fine. Well, I'm curious, you know, when you were marching with your mom and in a group, um, did you do you remember being scared at all? How did you feel about uh, marching to that school and and what was the reception by other kids when they saw you uh, marching to the school? Well, there was kids uh, that used to we told them on the in the school when we got in there, you could tell the kids had been taught stuff at home. They did not treat us very nice. And the kids that didn't know about this stuff, they made friends with us. And after, this has been years later, there were kids that I went to school with, and they would tell me, we're sorry that that happened to y'all because we did not know that stuff was going on. Hmm. And we told them, not your fault. You were a kid just like we were. And you can't, uh, you know, things are to you Melvin, let's talk about then the legal fight that was going on in kind of conjunction with this prolonged march that the 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 moms and their children were were doing. Yeah. So the uh, you know, I think one thing that's really ingenious about the march was that they brought forth this legal case, which if you are online and you want to look it up, it's Clemens v. Uh, School Board of Hillsborough, um, something close to those lines. Um, what's ingenious about this is that they bring this case, right, with the help of the NAACP, um, and they made sure that as this case is making its way through the court system, that they showed up to that school every day. Um, and that way, they couldn't say that, oh, you know, the kids aren't being denied entry into the school. No, they had to live up to the fact that uh, they were keeping those children out of the school. Uh, so that court case is working its way throughout those two years, um, all the way back up to the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court, you know, hadn't been too vocal um, about all of these sort of uh, desegregation cases that were bubbling up uh, in the wake of that Brown decision. Um, and ultimately, you know, the Supreme Court refuses to uh, hear that case, which means that the lower court's ruling, which mm. was that the schools had to immediately integrate, uh, went into effect. Um, and that's essentially how the marching ends in 1956 with the admission of the uh, black students to the white schools in Hillsborough. And wasn't there a pretty prominent individual representing this, these moms? Uh, yes, there was a very uh, prominent individual whose name I'm blanking on. Thurgood the, Marshall? Yeah. Well, Thurgood Marshall is one of them. But actually, um, oh, my colleagues are going to kill me for this. But um, 
All right, we'll try we'll try to get that name on your behalf. Yeah. But let me ask you this. I mean, once they did integrate the school, Teresa, how was that for you once you were allowed to go to, you know, what had been the white elementary school? Uh, one of the things that really bothered me when we got in, when we did our tests and things, we like in math, we had the correct answers, but they marked our paper wrong, and we couldn't understand why. They told us because we did not use the method that they used, and that would hurt a child when you know you had the right answer. Uh, we didn't know nothing about their method. We were homeschooled, and those Quaker teachers taught us every week. And we we didn't miss. We went every day after we got back from that march. We went to homeschool. Yep. And that's, so an, that na- oh, yep. that's an important part of that story is the fact that these kids, even though they weren't going to – their school, which had been burnt, <laughs> yeah. and then not into the white school, were actually being homeschooled, and there was a community of of white teachers that was helping them. Yeah. So before I jump back into that, that name was Constance Baker Motley. Okay. Uh, she was working with Thurgood Marshall, and she was a chief architect of that, you know, helped out with that Brown decision. And really in the wake of Brown, she traveled the country to support these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in—, in the one thing that's really, I think, powerful about this story is that there were uh, Quaker educators um, who came down from the nearby town to help uh, teach these kids in the two years that they were out. Um, and that means that they brought their lesson plans at the beginning of the week, you know, helped the mothers prepare to homeschool those kids in what, you know, many of them come to, came to call kitchen schools. Um, so you can imagine as a, you know, a parent today, you're getting your kids ready marching off to this school where you get denied and then you've got to come home and educate those kids as well so i mean the effort that went into all of this is really uh incredible and it's really difficult you know to see that after all those years you know they they did the education they did the schooling um all of them with the exception of one student are held back one to two years uh after the marching um so you know, there's I it still stands with me. One of the marchers mentions, you know, I was held back two years. I never got over that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing is that by denying these kids, it, it's it's hurting them. Right. And what, you know, somebody on the school board says, you know, keep them out for two years or three years. Um, you know, what's two or three years to you is a, you know, a, a very significant portion of these children's lives. And I think that's uh, part of what they missed. Teresa, you wanted to add? No, that's fine. Well, let me ask you that, Teresa. I mean, how did it feel when you weren't able to go to the white school, uh, but you had these Quaker teachers visiting uh, your and and your friends' homes to help you learn? Um, Was there a bit of appreciation for the fact that other community members were willing to help out? Yes. We had, there was the mothers that, like the class I was in, Miss Imogene had seven children, and Miss um, Griffith, Louise Griffith, was the Quaker teacher, and then the other teachers like Miss Hackney, and I don't remember some of the others that were, were younger kids. But my mom had one group, and I think Joanne had a group. Miss Rose Kilgore had a group, 
Miss Minnie Speech had a group, and uh, I forget who the the other lady But each one of them had a group of kids for, like, their age group. And uh, they, I remember Miss Griffith had us over to her house for a little picnic, like, when uh, the time was over for the homeschooling. And we enjoyed that. That's nice. Well, Mm -hmm. Teresa, let me ask you this. When you think back on that time and the strength that your mom showed and that you showed. Um, are you proud of your involvement in, in marching to uh, the school for two years and being part of, uh, you know, ultimately what was some important change? Yes. And I, I went to the school over here in Hillsboro a couple of years ago, and they showed the film, and the kids would ask And we was trying to explain to them Kids have all kinds of opportunities now to get an education. Don't waste it, because we had to work hard to get what we got. And it's, it wasn't easy, but I'm thankful that they went through it for us, and it helped us learn how to do our children. Well, Teresa, I, I appreciate your time. And, and Melvin, we've got a couple minutes left, but, you know, I want to talk about the present day. Um, one great point Teresa makes is the opportunity that is available to all kids um, to get an education, to enrich themselves, um, and to think of how hard kids back then um, had to fight for equal education. But at the same time, you know, in our system in Ohio, there's a lot of disparity between districts that have money or do not, and a lot of that um, even, you know, offers racial divisions. So I wonder what we can learn from the Lincoln School story and how we can apply that today. Yeah, the Lincoln School story is really um, kind of a starting point for understanding a lot of how our school systems operate today. So in the wake of Brown, um, you know, you had a lot of students of color moving into uh, different parts of communities that where they they hadn't been. Right. Um, And some parents were not comfortable with the inclusion of those African-American students. And what they did was, you know, you have this rise of these uh, private schools and private academies and redistricting uh, that takes place in the wake of Brown and things like the Lincoln School story. Um, And what that meant was sort of as you had black students moving in, you had resources um, and funds moving out um, into these more sort of um, niche spaces where they've carved out sort of schools for um, other children. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, if you look at that today, you know, we, we had this movement to sort of tear down segregation in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, but much of what's happened in recent years, you know, since that time has been a process of resegregation. Um, so, you know, I think that this documentary allows us to think critically about the moment that we're in today and ask questions about, you know, why is my community the way that it is? Why does it look the way that it is? You know, how did this school um, develop the way that it has over the past 30 years? Um, And I think that if we ask that question, um, then that gets us started towards building a better tomorrow. Dr. Melvin Barnes, historian and program officer with Ohio Humanities, and Teresa Williams, who marched with her mom, Sally Williams, as one of the Lincoln School marchers. Thanks so much for your time today. 
Melvin, I'll be seeing you at the film screening and panel discussion about the Lincoln School story happening tomorrow at 4.30 at Case Western Reserve University. We have registration details on today's show page at ideastream.org slash SOI. Melvin, quickly, if someone wants to watch the movie beyond the screening and can't go, is there a way that you're going to make this uh, film available? The the film is currently being sort of uh, rolled out by PBS, so you can go to um, their website or the Lincoln School Story dot com, um, where it'll have all of the information that you need about the Lincoln School, and you can check out viewing times. All right, well that wraps it up for the show. Thanks so much for listening. We will speak with you again tomorrow.